Hello and welcome to Season 2 of the HLEP Podcast by the Harvard Law Entrepreneurship Project. My name is Ben Ho. I'm a 3 year Harvard Law School and I'm your host. This season of the HLEP Podcast is made possible by our sponsors, Cooley, Femic and West, and Oric. You're joining us in the second half of our season where we learn about lawyering in a recession and lawyering in emerging industries. On today's episode, we speak to Manisha Mithal, a partner at Wilson Sonsini, about practicing in the artificial intelligence space. Manisha gives us a great overview of what policy concerns are emerging in this space, the relevant regulatory frameworks, and the types of legal issues lawyers help clients navigate in AI. Manisha also tells us about her experience working as a government lawyer and how it compares to her work in private practice today. If you're interested in practicing in the artificial intelligence space, this episode is for you. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few seconds to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. All right, let's get started. Hi, Manisha. Welcome to the HLA Podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have you on. We've had such great speakers from Wilson Sonsini, and I know we're going to have another great one today. Thanks. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Well, let's start with introductions. Can you tell us about yourself, your practice area, and how you got here doing what you do? What are some of the major checkpoints along the way? Sure. So my name is Manisha Mithal. I'm a partner in the Privacy and Cybersecurity Group in the DC office of Wilson Sonsini. I've been at the firm for about a year. Prior to that, I spent 22 years at the Federal Trade Commission, uh, working wow. most of that time on privacy issues. Um, when I graduated law school, I worked in big law for four years before I went to the government. And so I have kind mm. of a history of you know big law to government, back to big law. So I'm happy to talk about any of that career progression. Um, mm. In terms of substance, I started off my career as a litigator. Um, and back then... Uh, there was no such thing really as a privacy or a cybersecurity lawyer. These really weren't fields. There were no classes in law school. I never took tech mm. law classes or anything like that. You either went down a litigation path or you went down a transactional path. And mm. my idea was to go down the litigation path. So I got to my firm, did some litigation. I happened to take depositions in Yugoslavia. And all of a sudden, wow. I became an international lawyer. Uh, and so at that point, I decided I wanted to make a move from the private sector to the government. Uh, and so I applied to the Federal Trade Commission. They were looking for an international consumer protection lawyer. So I did that for a few years. And then in 2006, they started the Privacy and Cybersecurity Division at the FTC. And so I went to that because I found that super interesting, the intersection of tech and policy and law. Uh, and I headed mm. the Privacy and Cybersecurity Division there for about a decade. And now I'm at Wilson Sonsini doing similar work for the private sector. Oh, wow. You started off as a litigator and then you eventually transitioned to a more transactional role, you say? No, it wasn't transactional. So um, again, when I graduated law school, you either had a litigation path or a transactional path. So I started off with a litigation path. And then I realized that it wasn't just you know two boxes. You could mm. do regulatory work. You could do compliance work. You could do investigations. You could do counseling. And then when I got to the FTC, I was exposed to all of these rules and regulations, administrative law, just brand new areas. And so I pivoted from litigation to a more regulatory practice. And that's what I continue in today. Okay. So, you know, this is so interesting in, in so many ways. So when you were at these, I guess, crossroads, having to decide things in your career, did you know that AI was something that you were just really drawn to? I mean, was it, I mean, you found yourself there. Was it intentional or circumstantial that you went into this AI space? Uh, probably more circumstantial. So mm. when I started in privacy in about 2006, uh, the big deal then was mobile devices and the fact that we had computers in our pocket for the first time and we could upload, download pictures, videos. Uh, we had kind of our location coordinates. And so those were the big privacy issues of the day. Mm. So fast forward a couple of years uh, and there's a lot of new technologies that were coming into play. So we went from the internet as a technology to mm. mobile and apps as a technology. And then we went to the internet of things. So the fact that you could have a smart fridge and a smart thermostat, uh, and right. that was kind of the big issue of the day in the kind of mid 2010s. And then I would say late 2010s, the big technology issue of the day became uh, AI. So this was around 2018, 2019. Mm. And it was just a natural progression. And so when I was at the FTC, what we did was every time there was a new technology, we said, rather than start immediately with regulation, let's have a workshop. Let's have listening mm. sessions. 
let's learn about the technology. Let's find out what the privacy issues are. And so we had workshops, we did reports. And so AI was no different. So we used to call it big data. Uh, and when we talked about big data, we talked about the volume of data that was being generated by technology companies and the ability to predict future behavior based on past behavior. We don't really think of it as the AI field then. We thought, thought of it more as big data, but I think the terminology has evolved. And so we did a report on uh, big data and the current laws that apply, some of the considerations that continue to apply in the AI space. So for example, training data used to train AI. Um, mm. People talk about the fact that one of the benefits of AI is that can eliminate human bias. But then we found, well, who's programming AI? It's humans. Mm. Who's building the data sets that are used to populate the AI? It's humans. So there's still opportunities for bias to creep into AI. And so I would say I had a path where I was looking at the new technologies of the day and AI became one of them. And that's how I essentially got into the field of AI. Well, it is so encouraging. So you don't necessarily need to know what you're going to do. You can just focus on what you're interested in and then find yourself at a particular exciting point in your career then. That's exactly right. I think it's a combination of having some directional interest. Uh, are you interested in you know, working on deals? Mm -hmm. Are you interested in standing up in front of court? Are you interested in helping companies deal with emerging technologies and the legal and regulatory issues that apply to that? And I knew that that was the path that I was most interested in. And then you never know in 2025, what's going to be the big issue of the day or in 2030, mm. what's going to be the big issue of the day. And I think the key is to be flexible. Uh, and when a new technology comes down the pike or when people are talking about something new to really learn everything you can about that so that you can be an expert from the ground up, whether it's AI or Web3 or NFTs or any of the other issues that are, uh, are developing in the space. Uh, I think it's a question of figuring out what you're passionate about and pursuing that mostly by just getting up to speed and being able to talk about it. That's awesome. Well, speaking of all these changes and pivots, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about your pivot from government lawyering to tech? I mean, how did this happen and how did you decide to make such a change? Sure. So, um, so I've, I've probably been in the tech area for about 15 years. Mm. I just did it from the lens of the government, right? So every time a new technology comes out, you kind of figure out the rules and regulations that apply, and then you start bringing enforcement actions. So for example, when I was at the FTC, we brought the first uh, enforcement actions involving facial recognition. Uh, wow. So for example, uh, Facebook uh, had uh, allegedly told users that they would be able to opt in to the use of facial recognition technology. And the FTC brought a case alleging that Facebook had uh, essentially opted in users to facial recognition technology by default. Uh, and so we brought that case when I was at the FTC. So, um, so around 2021, 2022, uh, I, you know, during the 10 years or so that I've been working on privacy at the FTC, the FTC was really a leader in the privacy space. And uh, there was uh, new regulations on children's privacy, new regulations on financial privacy that I was working on while I was at the FTC. But then in the late 20s, uh, 20, uh, 2010s, it became apparent that Congress was not going to be passing a federal privacy law. And mm. the action really was at the state level. So California had a privacy law. Um, the other states were passing privacy laws. And I realized that there was a world in privacy beyond the FTC. Uh, and so I thought that one way to, uh, to really keep up with what was going on in the privacy area was to advise clients, not just on the FTC, but on state privacy laws, what was happening internationally. And so that mm. my interest was piqued in doing something beyond the FTC. And I think just beyond that, I think that we're always looking for challenges in our career. I don't think that, you know, once we've achieved a certain level, we should stagnate or rest on our laurels. Uh, I thought that it was time for me after 20 years at the FTC to do something different, to seek out new challenges, to, uh, to embrace a different role. Um, and so that was one of the reasons I had an interest in leaving the government and going back to the private sector and advising clients just from a different perspective. It changes your lens a little bit. It, uh, uh, it makes you think about things in a different way. And that was what was appealing to me. Oh, wow. So it sounds like your work today is a lot more dynamic and 
I guess, flexible too. There's so many other things you're doing too. Yeah. So, so again, at the FTC, it was mostly about bringing investigations and bringing lawsuits against companies after they had allegedly violated the law. Here, I can advise companies as they're building their compliance programs before any government agency comes knocking. I can try to help companies do the right thing, think about things in the right way, stay in compliance on the right path before it even gets to government investigations. So Mm. I would say today, my practice is really focused uh, on on four verticals. Uh, The first is advisory. So again, helping companies build compliance programs, counseling them. So if they say, for example, um, how do I advise my employees on whether they can or can't use AI? I want to use an AI product. What kind of contracts do I have in place to um, help facilitate that? So that's number one is advisoring, advisory and counseling. Number two is transactional. So if a company is merging with another company that has their own data, uh, how do you put in contracts? How do you put in protections? How do you do your due diligence to make sure that the company you're merging with is not using the data in ways that violate the law? Mm. So there's kind of a due diligence aspect when it comes to mergers and acquisitions and investments in other companies. So that's kind of the transactional side of my practice. The third vertical is cybersecurity uh, issues. So data breaches, incident response, how do you put in a cybersecurity program? Once you have a breach, which government agencies do you reach out to? Um, and how do you help companies respond? And then the final vertical is government investigations. So now I know what it was like to work at a government agency. I know what it was like when the FTC was investigating companies. And now I represent companies when the FTC mm. comes knocking and I can help defend them against FTC action. So, so that's kind of a, my practice in a nutshell. Why? Do you have a preference for, um, because now you're finding yourself on the other side of the table, right? How does it feel like, and do you like doing what you do more than what you were doing at the government side of things? Like, I'd love to hear. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely pros and cons. And I think if I were to advise people who are in your shoes, I would say Mm -hmm. kind of what are the things that you like to do? So when I was in the government, um, it was more about regulation and legal interpretation and um, uh, negotiation, a lot of negotiation of settlements and things like that. Um, From this perspective in private practice, I almost feel like I'm more of a business partner. So there's a little bit more about how the business works, how the technology Mm -hmm. works. Yes, I have to advise clients on regulations, but I also have to understand the business side of things a little bit more than I did when I was in the government. And so it's just a different skill set uh, I think it's something new for me and I'm really enjoying it. Um, but I wouldn't say I enjoy one more than the other. Um, and I, I think there's kind of pros and cons to everything. Um, I think, you know, when I was in the government, one wonderful thing about the government is that you could kind of set your own schedule because we mm. were essentially the uh, prosecutor, so to speak. We weren't criminal prosecutors. We were civil, a civil agency, but we could set timelines we could mm. grant extensions. And so I think from a lifestyle perspective, it was a terrific job to have. I was raising young kids um, and it was, it was just a, it was a wonderful experience. I had great work-family balance. Um, I think at a law firm, it's a lot more client-driven. So when the client calls and says they want an answer, they call Friday evening, you want an answer Monday morning. Um, <laughs> you're working all weekend on that. So I think that's probably you know, a, a con. Um, of working in the um, private sector, but I think that's counterbalanced by a lot of pros, right? In that you're mm. learning about the business side, you're um, you know indispensable to certain clients. Uh, it's intellectually challenging and fascinating. Um, and so again, I think that if you are looking for a career in tech, uh, in the intersection of tech, law, and policy, um, I think the government is a great place to be. Um, I also think there's a lot of in-house positions that could be available that are very interesting. And I think from a law firm perspective, I think you get a lot of variety. You advise different clients, different sizes, different technologies, different issues. Um, and so from a variety of a variety perspective, I think being at a law firm is great. Oh, that is so awesome. And you've touched on so many things, the regulatory concern, transactional concerns. I'm excited, you know, to, to get into the meat of the episode with you and learn more about these AI issues. So Manisha, we hear a lot about AI these days. 
ChatGPT, right? They have, it's captured our collective attention among many things from AI art and beyond. Can you tell us that when we talk about AI, what are we really referring to and what are the contours of this field? Sure. So I think, I think there's a couple of things that are in common to AI across the board. There's different types of AI products. There's different types of use cases, but there's a couple of things that are common in common. One is the massive amount of data that is used to populate AI, right? Mm. So it could be uh, companies that are scraping the web. It could be companies that are analyzing their customer service calls for voice snippets. It could be uh, examining photos. But in any event, it's generally a large amassing of personal information. Uh, the second thing in common to AI is some sort of machine processing, right? So not just mm. humans looking at this massive amount of data. It's kind of, there's input and then there's a machine that does some kind of magic, um, you know, for uh, to use a legal term, um, to kind of um, develop patterns and to look at, you know, pattern recognition. And then I th the third piece of it is the output piece, right? It's either the, um, you know, the essay that, cha that ChatGPT writes, or it's the art that is created, or it's some sort of decision that's created. And, and so I think a lot of the, as you mentioned, the collective imagination is around the ChatGPT, the art, mm. um, things like that. But if you look at it, there's a number of use cases, some of which, you know, have been around for 30 years. So things like credit scoring models, right? So the fact that, you know, have you been on time with your credit card bills and have you been on time with your car payments that a mortgage company will look at that and they'll go to a credit bureau and they'll say, okay, based on this person's past uh, credit history, are they a good credit risk? Uh, and so that's an algorithm, that's AI. Um, and that's something that's been used for years and years. Um, and so, uh, so I would really, I think there's a number of use cases. I think the regenerative AI use case um, has, has certain um, concerns from a regulatory perspective. I think those are a little bit different from some of the concerns of the other algorithmic decision-making that we talk about. So when we talk about algorithm decision-making, we talk about what ads are you shown? Uh, do you get credit? Um, do you get employment based on certain of your history? Do you get housing based on certain of your history? Do you get healthcare? What healthcare field are you slotted into? Precision medicine. Um, you know, what, what will doctors recommend that you take in terms of medicine based on your past history? So a lot of use cases, just, you know, as far as the imagination can reach. Um, and so a, when we talk about AI, I think sometimes it's helpful to hone in on what are we actually talking about? Once we develop the use case, that's how we can figure out what regulatory requirements apply to that. Oh, that is so interesting. And we're more apt to see the output, but we really don't think about the input and the processing side of things. Okay, so is AI today a practice area onto itself or does it comprise multiple practice areas? And if so, the latter, how do they all interact together? Sure. So, and I think different workplaces and different mm. uh, firms do this differently. But so at my firm at Wilson Sonsini, we have an AI working group mm. and that is composed of lawyers from across different practice areas. So I practice in the privacy and cybersecurity area, as I said. Um, and so I work in the, I, I also work as part of the AI working group. My colleagues in the AI working group range from transactional attorneys that are doing deals on AI to litigators who are litigating AI cases to IP lawyers who are trying to figure out, for example, when I, um, would I write something using chat GPT, what are the copyright issues? What are the intellectual property issues that apply? So it's really a cross section of practice areas. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'd be surprised if there was such a thing as an AI lawyer, right? Um, I think there are lawyers whose specialties are AI. There are practice groups out there that are AI. Um, but I think that um, it's more of a, an amalgamation of different types of practices. And then there are people mm -hmm. who really know the technology cold. And these are lawyers who have made it their business to know the technology so that they can speak to the business side of these things and understand both the business risks and the legal risks. Oh, wow. Okay, so interesting. You, you mentioned, so there are IP lawyers, there are privacy lawyers, there are transactional lawyers, and there are litigators too. So many different practices under this umbrella called AI. I, I'm not really curious to hear, can you be a generalist in this space? Can you, can you be like someone that knows a little bit about all these issues or do you, are you usually more of a specialist under this umbrella? 
there are definitely people who specialize in AI. Um, and they say, that's what I want to do. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I, I just think that that one day, that's going to be like saying I specialize in the internet. It, you know, it's the future, right? Mm. And so I guess I'd be surprised if there was like an AI specialty, just as I would be surprised if there was an internet specialty. Mm. Or like, again, if you think about the technologies of the day, when I started in this area, it was about mobile apps and mobile devices. and um, there's no mobile app lawyer, right? Mm. Um, you're a lawyer. You might be a tech lawyer, um, but I don't think there's such a thing really as an AI lawyer. Mm, okay. So this is really, really interesting because I was going to ask how you get into AI lawyering, but it sounds like you can start off as an IP lawyer or let's say a transactional lawyer and then just find yourself doing work in the AI space then. Exactly. I think that's a much more typical path and that's been my path. So I'm a privacy and cybersecurity lawyer. When I was at the FTC, this first came to our attention because we were realizing that there's a huge amount of personal data that is being used to mm. populate AI systems. And so facial recognition is just one example of a use case, right? So the reason that facial recognition technology can recognize my face is because they have billions of data points about what faces look like and mm. they can kind of make predictions. And so I gave the example of the, the Facebook case. There's another case that um, we brought against a photo sharing uh, and compilation app called Ever. So this was basically an app that you could use to organize your photos. And similarly, the Facebook case, they told consumers that you could, we would only use facial recognition on your photos if you opted into that service. And uh, the FTC had alleged that they did not um, opt into that service. Another thing the FTC alleged was that they told consumers that they would delete their data after consumers left the service. And the FTC alleged that they did not delete consumers' data and use that to populate facial recognition. Mm. And so one of the things we did in that case was we required the company not only to delete all of the data that it had gotten deceptively, but to delete any algorithms or AI models that the company had used from that data. And so that was like a big deterrent for the company wow. because I think a lot of what companies are doing now with data is that they're using the data to build AI models. Um, and so, so that's kind of how I, um, how I got into AI is I started learning about how these models are populated. Um, and then I think it was a concern that the, we heard at the FTC that AI was being used in discriminatory ways. Um, so mm. let me just give you an example. Um, so there was a report that was done that suggested that employees who work more than 20 miles away from their workplace were more likely to quit their jobs at a faster rate than employees who lived closer to the workplace. And the concern expressed was that if companies actually use this to not hire people who had long commutes, that could discriminate against minorities and others who couldn't afford to live in certain areas where their workplace was. And so you could mm. see ways that AI could be used on kind of facially neutral characteristics, you know, how far somebody works from the office and be used to discriminate against particular classes. To give another example, um, there was an algorithm that was used to try to target healthcare resources to, um, to minority populations. And the input that was used from that was how often people went to the doctor. And they said, okay, based on how often people go to the doctor, we think this is the population that needs healthcare resources in this area. But what they found was, well, black people don't go to the doctor as much as white people do, either because they um, had um, you know, negative experiences with the healthcare system or they couldn't, you know, problems with insurance. And so it perpetuated rather than solve the problem of healthcare resources not being targeted to Black communities. And so we would hear these stories at the FTC and we'd say, well, we have a tool to try to correct that. Um, there's a law that prohibits unfair practices. And so the FTC said it is an unfair practice to use AI in a way that discriminates against protected classes. And mm. so that became part of the law. And right now, I advise companies on how to make sure that they're testing their algorithms to make sure that it doesn't have a disparate impact on protected classes. Oh, that is so interesting. Okay, you've already covered so much here. You talked about um, 
avoiding disparate impact issues. Uh, talked about facial recognition and privacy issues. I was going to ask about some of the legal issues that are arising alongside this technology in space. Are there anything, other, any other issues you'd like to share? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, okay. So, so I think I think privacy issues. So let me just talk about mm -hmm. privacy issues in general. So um, let's say you are um, populating your AI by um, voices, right? So you have a customer service department, you have lots of calls, you record those calls, and then you use that to build models. And like, maybe it's like a chatbot model, or maybe it's like a kind of telephone you know, uh, uh, robot chat. Mm. Um, so that's a great use case, but there are laws in place that require consent before you collect people's voice information. And so we advise companies on how to comply with those laws. Is a recording at the beginning of the call sufficient? Do you need something in writing? Do you need something on the web? Where should the notice be? Um, how do you collect that information? How do you retain the consent? If the government comes knocking, how do you provide evidence of that consent? And so those are the types of issues that we would advise the companies on. Um, similarly, if you're actually going to use people's uh, transcripts of their chat conversations um, to train an AI model. What disclosures do you need to provide them? What opt-outs do you need to provide them? What consents do you need to provide them? Those are all issues uh, that we can advise on. Another example is um, say you have a service provider. Um, say, you know, say you don't do your own AI and you're contracting with a company that is going to help you do an AI analysis of your uh, products and services. Um, you want to make sure under the contract that they can't actually use the information or sell the information to third parties that they're only providing you with the service that's necessary. Mm. So we can help advise on how to draft your contract. So those are some of the privacy issues that come into play when we're talking about AI. Oh, wow. So it's a lot of like making sure you set up the right boundaries so you don't run afoul of these rules then. Exactly. Exactly. Another example that comes into play is, let's say you make a statement about your AI. You say, we are providing this AI product and we promise you that this does not discriminate and we're much better than those three other companies because they are AI discriminates and ours doesn't. Hmm. Well, you have to back up that claim. There's a law that prohibits deceptive practices. And so if you make certain statements about how your AI works, or what inputs you use, or what outputs it has, or what level of discrimination it has, you have to have state, but you have to have substantiation to back that up. Okay, this makes me think of so so many directions here, right? I love to hear in your work today at Wilson Sincini, Can you can you describe some of the typical clients in this space? What are some of their general concerns or needs? One of the things I think that's so cool about practicing at Wilson Sincini is that we advise clients ranging from startups. Mm. Um, these are literally people who don't have in-house lawyers. There may be like two or three people, they're venture funded, um, and they're just starting out. And so we advise them. Uh, we also advise companies that you know, are through the IPO stage. So the idea is we represent companies from startup to IPO and beyond. And you know, companies at the IPO, the, uh, uh, the initial public offering stage, um, they um, have different issues from the startups. Maybe they have their own mature legal departments. Maybe they have a general counsel. Um, they're a little bit more sophisticated and they're asking us a little more high level questions. Um, and then beyond, you know, we represent, it's public that we represent companies like Google, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, Google will have entirely different issues when it comes to AI and algorithmic decision-making than when it comes to a startup. So for startups, for example, we help them draft their privacy policies. We help them draft their terms of service. Uh, to the extent that they enter into con contracts with people, we can advise them on their contracts. And that's pretty much the extent of how we help startups. Um, when we're talking about more mature companies, um, it might be, okay, well, now there's this issue under California law. And just to give you an example, California mm -hmm. new privacy law requires that when automated decision-making is used, so when there's some type of automation in how a decision is made about consumers, um, that consumers be given information about that automated decision-making as well as the ability to opt out. And so the company might say, hey, is this automated decision-making? Would we be covered by the California law? And then we would kind of do some research for them and then figure out if they're covered by the California law and if they are, what they have to do to comply. Um, 
Another company might say, hey, we use these kind of voice snippets. Does the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act apply? And if it does, what do we need to do? Um, so those are those types of questions. And then when it comes to companies like Google or some of the larger companies, they might say, hey, can you help us stand up a compliance program? Can you interview our various departments, find out what they're doing now, figure out where there are gaps in our um, compliance and help us fill in those gaps? And so those tend to, tend to be more longer term projects. Um, wow. So it's, it's a real mix. And I think that's what keeps it super interesting is that you have different size companies, you have different um, business models, you have different use cases, and then you have different laws that you're, you're uh, advising people on. Oh, that is so cool. So it really does sound like you're always at the cutting edge of things because a startup is going to come to you with this, hopefully a game-breaking idea. Yeah. And they're, th they're probably going to ask you, like, how do I make sure that we do this right? How do we protect this technology? Yeah. And it sounds like for clients later on in the life cycle of a company, they're more concerned about regulatory issues and making yeah. sure they don't run afoul of anything. Yeah. And, and okay. it's very interesting because, like, to a larger company, you might say, hey, you might get a lawsuit from the FTC or from a state AG, and that's what really drives them. For a startup, I think what really drives them is, hey, we're going to have business partners. We're going to have investors. So it's not so much the fear of regulation. It's more the fear of, you know, we really need to make sure our house is in order so that we can get funding or so that we can kind of, um, if, if we're using service providers to provide certain services, so we can satisfy them because they're going to be do, they're doing their due diligence on us. And so we have to show them that we have a plan in place for complying with these laws. Oh, very interesting. I was really I was going to ask you next about how these issues evolve over the life cycle of a company, but that's just such a great way to summarize. Okay, so I got it. I let me ask you this: What are some of the major policy concerns that are also emerging and developing in this space? Can you unpack them for us? Sure. So I already talked about with decision making. Um, mm. There's a concern about discrimination. So if AI is used to reject somebody for a job, or for credit, or for housing, or for healthcare. There's lots of policy concerns about discrimination. Then you have the use case of regenerative AI um, and, um, and you know, the kind of art that you're talking about. Um, I think there's some different concerns there. So there's concerns about copyright. There's concerns about plagiarism. Mm. There's concerns about the spread of misinformation and disinformation. Um, there's concerns about privacy. Um, so, so really, um, I, I think it's a really fascinating area because it's just developing and it will remain to be seen how regulators and class action plaintiffs and others, uh, what, what the pain points are. And I think we're just, we're just starting to figure that out. Mm, okay. So um, I guess speaking today, can you tell us about some of the major regulatory frameworks that players really should be aware of? So there's at the federal level, there's uh, really three sets of requirements. Uh, the first I've already talked about, which is the FTC Act, which prohibits unfair or deceptive practices. They've already mm -hmm. said it's unfair to use AI in a way that discriminates against protected classes. I've talked about deception. If you make claims about your AI and they're not true, that could be a deceptive practice. So that's number one. Number two is a law called the Fair Credit Reporting Act. So if you are using AI to make decisions about people's housing, credit, employment, or insurance, uh, then there's certain requirements that may apply under the FCRA. So for example, if you're rejected from housing or credit or employment, you're generally entitled uh, to what's called an adverse action notice that explains why you didn't get the credit, what was the basis for the information, and how you can correct it. And so that's the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And so in some circumstances, if you're compiling information and you're using information about third parties, the Fair Credit Reporting Act would apply. It's interesting because the name of the law is the Fair Credit Reporting Act, but it's actually much broader than credit. It goes yeah. to employment and housing and insurance and other decisions about consumers as well. And then the third source of law is the anti-discrimination laws. So things like Equal Credit Opportunity Act, Fair Housing Act. Uh, so it's interesting, actually, HHS brought a case against Facebook a few years ago because for their ads, you could actually choose facially neutral categories for housing ads. Um, but the HHS alleged that uh, they were showing certain types of housing ads to minorities, like uh, public mm. assistance housing, and they were targeting minorities. And so HHS said that that violated the Fair Housing Act. Um, so those are kind of the three federal laws. Um, 
we're seeing a lot more AI-specific laws, particularly at the state level. So for example, I already mentioned some of the state privacy laws. There are five laws currently on the books in the states that require this notice and opt-out of automated decision-making. So those are certain laws that apply. There's also state and local laws that apply to AI in the employment space. So for example, if you are an employer in New York City and you're using AI uh, to hire people, so maybe you're doing emotion recognition or facial recognition through interviews, then you have to give consumers notice, you have to give them an opportunity to opt out of the AI, and you have to conduct what's called a bias audit to make sure that your technology is not biased. So that law goes into effect in April. There's also an Illinois law and a Maryland law addressing AI in employment. There's a Colorado law addressing AI in insurance. Um, and right now there's a proposed DC law that requires that any time that you have, um, that you're using AI for any kind of decision-making about consumers, you have to conduct what's called a bias audit. So you, that's just testing to make sure that your AI isn't biased. Um, mm. So a lot of activity happening at the state level. At the federal level, there's also some proposed bills that require impact assessments for AI that require notice and kind of an explanation to consumers if AI is used to conduct decision-making about them. Oh, very cool. Wow, there's so many laws out there. And I can see how, from how you described it, that these laws seem to be arising in response to how data is used and avoiding all those policy concerns you already mentioned. Okay, so what are some of the challenges of abiding by them? Are there any like gray areas where people aren't sure how they're supposed to be applying these things and abiding by these rules? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I think two things. One is that you have this established set of laws, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, um, the anti-discrimination laws and the FTC Act. Um, so I think those are well-established laws, but at the same time, there's some questions about um, you know, how, how they apply to AI. So I'll give you an example. So under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, if I'm denied credit, um, I'm entitled to an explanation of why. And so they might tell me, okay, well, you were late on these payments and you never paid your bills here and you had a bankruptcy on your record, et cetera. And so I can, you know, I can then understand as a consumer. When AI is used to deny credit, there might be a black box, right? Humans may not know why the AI denied credit. And so there's like maybe a hundred reasons. There may be a thousand reasons. Um, and it's just very difficult to explain to a consumer what the reason was. Um, but regulators have said, well, that's not an excuse. You have to still explain why. Um, and so I think some companies are, are um, I think that's a challenge for some companies. Um, I think in terms of the newer laws, I think there are a lot of open questions. Um, so I mentioned, what does automated decision-making mean? What is a decision that rises to the level of something that you need to provide consumers an opt-out for? Um, another question is, let's say an algorithm or AI is used for fraud prevention. Um, and let's say I'm a hacker or a criminal or an identity thief, and I say, I want an explanation of why I wasn't allowed to come into the system because the law entitles me to an explanation. Well, you're really mm -hmm. gonna give the keys to the kingdom to a criminal or a fraudster or an identity thief so that next time they can figure out a way around um, you oh, know, wow. to try to infiltrate a system. And so I think these are some of the kind of questions that are coming up right now that I think are very interesting and very difficult for companies. Oh, well, that is so interesting. Like, what do you do now when, you, when you're facing a technology that is kind of smarter than you, right? Oh, exactly. okay. Well, well, there's so much to unpack there, but let me ask you this. Can you take us behind the scenes in the work you do on the daily? You know, what does a typical day look like for you now as a big law partner practicing in this space? Can you describe, say, your day-to-day -day legal work? Sure. Um, so I would say a lot of my days is, are spent in meetings um, mm -hmm. where I'm either meeting with a client to try to understand what problem they're trying to look to, to have me help solve. Um, or, um, or to kind of provide my advice to the client or to get in additional information, conduct interviews of the business team at the client to figure out, um, you know, so I can understand more about the technology so I can answer the question they want me to answer. Um, it involves internal meetings where I work with associates um, to, who are kind of conducting research to try to, you know, get to the bottom of the answer. Um, it involves a lot of writing. So I might be writing emails to clients or memos to clients or bullet points you know, it involves a lot of kind of thinking about risks 
and how clients can help to, to try to mitigate those legal risks. Um, it involves conducting research. So, so I think, you know, I would say for a partner, my day is spent mostly in meetings, either internally with associates who are helping brief me on some of the issues that I'm trying to get back to clients on or meetings with clients. Um, it also involves some writing and general reading and articles about, you know, so that I can stay up with technology. So I can, you know, in the morning I get some alerts. Here's what's happened, you know, overnight in your field. I read those, I write articles. I do some business development, so to kind of try to attract new clients, I'll do a blog post on AI um, or some, you know, some other topic or some sort of case that came out. Um, so that's a lot of my job. I think your listeners might be more interested in what it means to be an associate. Yep. I think that one of the nice things about a regulatory practice is that I think they tend to be less document intensive than either a litigation practice or a corporate transactional practice. Um, so. Um, so it's a lot of like, what my associates do for me is they might conduct research uh, and provide me with an initial response to a question. So does California law apply in this situation? The associate would do the research, come back to me with a preliminary response that I could share with the client. They might brief me orally. There is some document review involved. So if, if we're working on a government investigation, they might, um, you know, we might have produced documents to the government. So they might have to review those documents. They might have to do some advocacy filings. So they have to, you know, I, I would say it's really a combination of research, writing, meetings, and some document review. Okay. So um, you already mentioned the work for the associates, but do you see the work changing or evolving from junior to senior associate, if at all? Yeah. Yeah. So I think when you're a junior associate, you're really taking your cues from the senior associate. Um, so let's take a counseling matter as an example. On a counseling matter, I might work directly with a junior associate um, where I'll say, does California law apply? Go research for me, which circ the circumstances under which it might apply to a company like this in a situation like this. So that's kind of a typical scenario for a junior associate. So they get to do the research and the writing. Then let's take an investigation. So government investigations are pretty involved and I usually staff them with at least one senior associate and one junior associate. Where the, juniors, where the senior associate will say, okay, let me figure out what the government is asking for here. Let me figure out what the government wants and let me like work with the client to figure out how I can get that information. And then they might have kind of a, a program that they put that in and the junior associate might then review some of the documents that the client produced. The junior associate might do like an initial draft of interrogatory responses or letters um, and then the senior associate would review that. And then I would kind of review that on top of that. So, um, so I think, you know, for the juniors, there, there probably is a little more document review, a little more supervision by a senior associate on the investigations. Oh, great. Okay. So it sounds like research will remain a pretty large component throughout this entire career then. Yeah, exactly. And, and I will say in my area, you know, it's a lot of writing of privacy policies, a lot of mm. reviewing of contracts. Um, and, um, so I think that that's also some, some portion of what a junior associate does. Oh, great. So if you're listening today and you're really interested in this stuff, uh, then, and you like research, then this is a kind of a promising place to move towards. Okay. Absolutely. So last question in this segment. Um, so we talked a lot about what is interesting to you in AI. As you look ahead, what are you most excited about in this field? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, a lot of interesting things. I think that I'm really excited to see how the, uh, generative AI space plays out. I'm excited to see how, you know, what the consumer uptake is, what the use cases are. And I think this is the most fascinating part of being at the intersection of law, technology, and policy. And I would also put in some kind of consumer behavior add to that. I think that's a really fascinating part of my job is that I get to think about like, how would consumers think about this? Would they be surprised? Because you don't want consumers to be surprised. You want them to... Um, to have trust in the company so they'll continue to use their products and services. And so I think consumer behavior is a fascinating aspect and it'll be very interesting mm -hmm. to see the uptake of these technologies. So I'm really excited to see that. Okay, well, we'll be watching closely. Um, Manisha, now we're gonna transition to our final segment, Advice for Law Students. Can't wait to ask you. So uh, some of the listeners listening in today are thinking, okay, we, I, we really wanna be AI lawyers. We wanna work in the AI field. What advice do you have for law students or even junior associates who are interested in this space? Is there anything you can do in law school to prepare yourself or things you can do right now in your practice to position yourself accordingly? Sure. Um, so I would definitely try to take um, 
tech law classes, privacy, mm-hmm. cybersecurity classes, IP classes, um, just something to show an interest in this area. And I think to the extent people have opportunities to write a note or um, uh, or some sort of uh, you know scholarship on AI issues, I think you know when, when you know firms are picking up resumes or you know they they want to see like some distinction. Um, you know, to the extent there's internships or summer jobs, you know, working in, in these spaces, I think that uh, law firms and companies tend to look at that. So um, I think number one is making sure that you have that interest front and center displayed somewhere on your resume, whether it's through classes or internships or writing and scholarship. That's number one. Number two, I would say to be flex- flexible um, mm. because you never know where your career is going to take you. It's good to have a direction. It's good to have an interest. But if it's too narrow, a niche, um, you never know where that might evolve. Um, mm. So I think, you know, rather than saying, I, um, I want to do AI exclusively, I think saying I am interested in the intersection of law, technology, and policy gives you some wiggle room and some flexibility to explore other areas that might be of interest that, you know, so I, I think it's really important to ask why something is important to you. Um, so, you know, taking an example away out of AI, like crypto, crypto might be another example. Mm-hmm. Um, so there might be a law student or law students interested in crypto. Well, as we've seen from the market, you know, crypto has gone up and down and kind of Hanging all your hopes in one narrow area, I think, might uh, be too narrow, I guess, is what I would say. Mm. And so, you know, what about crypto is it that interests you? Is it, um, is it the technology? Is it the blockchain? Is it Web3 issues gener- generally? Is it, um, you know, uh, is it financial or fintech? Mm. Um, so I, I think that really packaging yourself a little more broadly, I think would be beneficial. Um, so th- that would be my advice to Wall Street's. Oh, that is great. So you might be very interested in AI today, but you really want to position yourself in a place where you can pivot to many other technologies and apply these. Okay. Yeah. That's great. Well, so let me ask you this. Many of our listeners are in law school today and they're, you know, most of them are three L's probably graduating soon. What advice do you have for them with respect to building a successful legal career? So um, I think a couple of things. Number one um, is networking, um, mm-hmm. reaching out to people, connecting on LinkedIn, going to conferences and really meeting people. And this may be controversial, but I feel like some people do like a scattershot approach to networking. Mm-hmm. Um, I would try to be a little more intentional and focus on the one or two people, you know, at a conference, not, you know, you go to a conference, you don't try to collect a hundred business cards or like a hundred, you know, LinkedIn connections. I think that's Mm. fine. And I think that's, that's not a bad idea, but I think building that one or two connections where you actually have a meaningful conversation with somebody, um, I think that's much more valuable. So I think networking. Number two is finding mentors. I think that's related to networking. Again, you don't just go up to anybody and say, will you be my mentor? You kind of, really work with people, make sure that people can see how impressive you are, um, and really kind of build those relationships organically so that you can go to people and ask for advice. Um, third is to be flexible. You might not get your dream job. You might not get your number one job. You might not get your um, job in exactly the field you want to. But I think there's a real value to building your own career. Like I didn't get into privacy until you know 15 years into my career. Um, and I wouldn't trade the prior 15 years for anything in the world because I learned so much. Um, so even, you know, when I was at the FTC and I was hiring people, I actually was a little bit reluctant to hire people who were just only privacy, privacy, privacy. I was Mm -hmm. like, I want to see litigation skills and I wanted to see writing skills and I wanted to see research skills. And you can get that in a lot of different areas. So I think flexibility is a really important, um, piece of advice. Um, and then the last piece is, you know, I guess patience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people will want to get right into these issues on day one. I think your job coming out of law school is number one, to be prepared, to really research everything as much as possible, two, to be organized, 
um, you know, like partners sometimes are very scattered and, and like people who you work for might be very scattered and just, you know, to help organize them. And, um, and, and number three is to be responsive, um, right? If you're asked to take notes at a meeting, take notes at the meeting. If you're asked to, um, you know, uh, uh, a question through email, respond to the email right away, even if you can't get to it. So I think those are some of the things, be patient and responsive. And, you know, it might be scut work, it might be taking notes, it might be reviewing documents but really be the best you can be. And that's how you'll shine above everybody else and allow your career to progress. Such great advice. So network, but network intentionally. And, you know, make sure you take the time to build mentorship relationships that will help you in the fields that you're interested in. Be patient, but also be responsive. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, I, I love to ask, final question. Anisha, knowing everything that you know now, if you could go back to law school or the first year of legal practice, is there anything that you would have changed or done differently? That's a great question. Um, honestly, not. Um, I had a great law school experience. I loved law school. I know that everybody can't say that, um, but I loved it. Had a great experience. Um, I liked the fact that I started my career in big law um, because I feel like I had a safety cushion. I don't think much was expected of you know first and second year associates. Whereas I've heard that people who go directly into government or directly in house are kind of more sink or swim. Um, and I don't think that would have suited me because you get your own cases right away or you get your own matters or you're like leading projects right away. And I think the way I was able to ease into it, I think suited my personality. I had a great career in the government. Um, I was very lucky to have wonderful mentors. Um, and um, and now I, I, I'm, I'm having a great time at Wilson Sonsini. So, um, so I have no regrets. I don't think I would have done anything differently. Um, and I might've, I, I guess I might've, gone for a clerkship. I, I, I never did do a clerkship. Um, and so sometimes when people are talking about litigation oriented things, I feel like there's a little bit of a gap in my knowledge and then clerkships are, are terrific. Um, but other than that, I feel, I feel pretty lucky. Well, that is great to hear. Thank you so much for joining us here. I had such a great conversation. I'm already looking forward to the next one. Okay. Thank you so much, Ben. It was great talking. Thank you for listening to season two of the HLEP podcast, proudly brought to you by Cooley, Femic and West and Oric. We'd like to thank our sound engineer, Joe Blim, and of course, Manisha, for taking the time to share her thoughts and experiences with us. A special shout out to Ruru for helping me with the episode questions. Join us next time for another episode in our Lawyering in a Recession and Emerging Industries series. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a few seconds to give us a five-star rating and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Thank you and see you next time. This podcast is a production of the Harvard Law Entrepreneurship Project an officially recognized Harvard Law School student organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Harvard Law School or Harvard University.